May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Did you make any New Year's resolutions this year? It seems like when the calendar turns from December to January, we all become, at least temporarily, optimists about human nature. People vow to make changes in their lives, big and small. We're going to learn new skills. We're going to keep in touch with loved ones. We're going to eat more salad. (laughs) There is something about a new year that feels very fresh and hopeful. People say it all the time, new year, new me. I do think that's often sometimes how Christians think about the Old Testament when compared with the new. We know there's something there that must be worth digging into, but the issue is kind of right there in the name, isn't it? Why bother with the Old Testament when we have the new one? Out with the old, in with the new. Old is boring. New is fresh and exciting. Nobody ever says, do you like my old outfit? I got it decades ago. It is brand old. So depending on our perspective, we may have a bias. That means we prefer new things or old things. In my previous life, I worked for about a year with a young man who was always snatching up the newest technology that was offered to our little sales staff. And he would do this with the kind of joy that seemed like it meant he needed these tools for his work. But the gadgets didn't always sort of conform to practicality. Uh, His name was Joshua, and he always had two mobile phones on little hip belt clips uh, and carried a laptop and an iPad around with him on every sales call. He was ready for whatever challenge that might come up. It was a little bit like working with a sales robocop. (laughs) Unfortunately, that was about the extent of his expertise. Because Joshua was notorious for oversleeping and underdressing, and then never really following through on anything he told customers. That's a pretty tough triple threat to overcome when you're in sales. He was, in fact widely regarded as the worst salesperson in our whole outfit, which is why we only worked together for about a year. And when he was let go, he called to ask me if I had any advice for him, if I thought I could share why maybe that they had decided to move on. And his first words to me were a little stunning. He said, I can't believe I got fired. I always had all that stuff they gave us with me whenever I went on calls. And I had to remind him, in in a gentle kind of way, that the job of a salesperson is not just to carry the stuff around that they give you, but to connect with customers, to do your job. In hindsight, it seemed that he had missed this important lesson about, you know, being actually able to sell stuff in the pursuit of all that was shiny and new and looked really good on the outside. So if we think about the Old Testament in that way, I think we are in danger. 
Because this is the foundation for what follows in the Gospels and the rest of the Bible. These two halves are complementary. As St. Augustine of Hippo said, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. We come back to this theme pretty frequently in preaching because when we lose the ancient roots of our faith, we're in danger. And the danger is that we might start to believe that our destiny is in our own hands, when instead it is bound up with God's much longer story of salvation history. In fact, in all of the Bible, there is this one single story, like a single piece of fabric, woven together by God, according to a pattern of God's design. And that design has woven in all kinds of people from all nations, including you and I. And it starts with God's plan to redeem Israel and through Israel, the whole world. Remember, of course, that Jesus himself read the Old Testament. We might even say he read it religiously. We heard last Sunday about him quizzing the Jewish teachers at the temple about the scriptures. And remember that he said, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. All of that should drive us to have this immense interest and love for the biblical text. The earliest Christians used this great term, theoria, which means to behold, to describe the first thing that they wanted to do when they read the Bible. The idea was, That as a faithful reader of scripture, your first job is not to understand, but just to sit and behold the text on its own terms, to see the beauty, to look at it the way that you and I might look at a great painting or a sunrise, not trying to control it, not trying to make the sun rise faster so that you can get on with whatever else you have to do, but just to sit still and appreciate the beauty of God's word. And coming to the Bible in that way needs us, leads us to that deeper desire to know and love the Lord that the Bible reveals. It's because of that conviction that we can read the presence of Jesus in scriptures that are not explicitly about the church or Christ himself. It lets us find in even the most obscure passages truth that can be applied to our lives. If the modern method starts with the text, this older method begins with a conviction that God is present in the mystery. Thankfully, the preparations for Passover, which we read about this morning from Exodus, are not as hard to translate into our own lives as some parts of the Old Testament. Anyone who's ever had to explain the Song of Songs to a teenager knows that sometimes it can be tricky to figure out what exactly God is trying to teach. Moses relays God's instructions to the people. They will eat a feast of roasted lamb with bitter herbs and unleavened bread in a hurry, with their traveling clothes on, ready to leave as soon as possible. And on that night, the night of the Passover, every family is to kill a lamb, reserving the blood to mark the doorposts and the lentil of their houses. The blood will be the sign that the family that dwells in that house is to be preserved from the death of the firstborn. This final act that will break the Egyptian stranglehold on the Israelites 
and see them released to leave their slavery behind. Now, we can read this text through the lens of Christ and his cross with just a little prayerful work. As Exodus says, this is a new beginning for God's people. It includes a special communal meal. That new beginning is sealed with the blood of an innocent lamb. Do any of those reverberations echo with us? The New Testament lies hidden in the Old. The Old Testament is unveiled in the New. And this story is not just about a particular people at a particular moment. God's field of vision is always broader than just one moment. He sees deeper into history. The acts of God on behalf of God's people transcend time and space. And that's just as true in the far ancient past as it is for us now. This Passover is the moment of recreation, a new beginning that asserts God's supremacy over everything. God even tells the Israelites to come up with a new way to calculate the months because the Exodus is recreation for Israel, a new beginning that extends even to how they count their days. This Passover meal becomes the defining ritual of Jewish self-identity. The Israelites are to remember this night forever, to impress it on their collective conscience and teach it to their children as an everlasting remembrance given by God. And during that first celebration of the feast itself, the Lord, the one true God, will be executing judgment on the Egyptians and their false gods, dealing with those who oppress God's people, bringing judgment and justice. The Passover, of course, continues to serve as a reminder not of just what God has done, but what God is doing and what God will do in the future. Faithful Jewish believers keep vigil to honor the Lord as he kept vigil for them on that night to deliver them from slavery. By celebrating the feast of the Passover and not forgetting this foundational story, in some mysterious sense, they participate in the exodus again themselves. As the Talmud says, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. This is the ancient story that is still speaking today. And the whole event looks forward to a future celebration in the promised land after God has executed deliverance. It hopes for a time when things are so good that the troubles of Israel's Egyptian captivity are easy to forget. When they're in the rearview mirror of history. When remembering the bad old days is harder to do. When the scars have faded and the hardships are reduced to legend. It's a story that parents teach their children so that their children will not forget what God has done. So how does that incredible history become a story that means something for us? What does it mean to be faithful Christian people who love this story of God's action on behalf of his people and who do so without trying to replace or erase the experience of those Jews? whose foundational scriptures we're trying to read faithfully as our own. Well, it seems very clear that there is a connection between the observance of Passover 
and what you and I do together every Sunday at this table. Jesus' institution of Holy Communion or the Eucharist at his last supper with his disciples draws these connections very clearly. He knew what he was doing. Both the Passover and the Eucharist are reminders of God's acts of deliverance on behalf of people who cannot save themselves. Both involve a certain amount of historical and theological symbolism. Both are intended as meals for the faithful insiders and not just anybody who happens to walk in. But crucially, both of these meals include an invitation for others to join the faithful community gathered around the table. Those households that were too small to afford their own lamb for the Passover were told to gather with their neighbors. While for Christians, this Eucharistic table is always the place where Christ is both meal and host, and where all baptized people are welcome. In that way, shared table fellowship is always a reminder and a foretaste of God's love and deliverance. The institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper is a transformation of the elements of the Passover for those who believe in Christ. And the significance of the Eucharist is not limited to just one source or one meaning. It is a hugely significant moment, but at least a little bit of that historical context comes from chasing, tracing that through line from the Exodus here this morning to our table. And because of that great significance, because of the long salvation history, we should prepare our hearts to receive Christ at this table in the same way that the Israelites prepared their homes for the Passover. We cannot hope to limit the layers of meaning that are held in the bread and the wine. For those who are marked as Christ's own forever by the blood of the Lamb, this is always more than just a meal. The Eucharist is, in fact, the sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's love for us. It is the feast of all feasts. Here at this table, we taste the whole world in the wine and the wafer. The God who gave his life for ours to seal us with his blood, to protect us and bring us into his community of love and friendship, invites us to eat with him this morning as a reminder of all that he has done and in anticipation of all that he will do on our behalf. This is what God has always wanted for the whole world from the very beginning. And he sent his son, Jesus, who we remember as the Lamb of God, to invite us personally into a relationship that makes all of this possible. Putting your faith in Jesus in that way can be the kind of new beginning that we all hope for. The start of a new life with new purpose. And there's even more good news than that. Because you can put your trust in him and start that new life all over again today. Even if you have been a disciple of Christ for many years. You need not stay in a personal Egypt enslaved to sin. Because God is ready to forgive you and receive you and lead you out of that captivity. Into the place where he has promised to meet you 
in that promised land of holiness. That is why Jesus came into the world. That's why the Lamb of God proclaimed the good news. To continue this work that is both very old and still so very new. It's an incredible thing that God still does all these centuries later. Honoring his own promises on our behalf. Seeking to spare us and to bring us into a life better than we could ask for or imagine. If only we would put our lives in his hands. If you're still looking for a New Year's resolution a way to grow personally or get healthier or maximize your happiness. I invite you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to consider how you might resolve to dedicate yourself to following the Lord of the Passover and the Eucharist, the one who was and is and is to come, who calls each of us to live a new life made possible by his love. Amen.